Thank you so much for joining us for the Summit Podcast. This message was produced with you in mind, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has shown himself faithful in your life. Email us at mystory@summittogether.com. Welcome to the stage, if you would, Pastor Jim Hennessy. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mel. I, I love your church. I mean, if it were snowing in Dallas right now, there would be 10 people at my church where there's normally thousands. People don't, don't I mean, we just cancel church if it snows. Look at you coming out in the snow. You're, you're amazing. And I love Pastor Mel and Kim and the girls. What a, do you appreciate that God has given you a great, great gift, a great pastor? Oh, my goodness. And, and what a crybaby, right? I've never been with him when he didn't at some point just start. I, it's because he's got a great, great heart for Jesus. So it's such an authentic testimony of, of who Jesus is. And I too, oh, I wish, I wish Beck were here. It just makes my life so much better. We had actually planned for her to be here. She's the superstar of this, of this family and the ministry. We had planned for her to be here, um, but we, at the last minute, had to rearrange. She has to drive to Florida to be with her, her dad down there. So anyway, um, you're stuck with me. What can I say? What, uh, not just one time either, but uh, tonight and Monday. I hope you'll, hope you'll come. I want to talk to you for a few moments about, about a message simply called On Your Mark. On your mark. And the text that I'm reading from is, um, I don't know, is it familiar to you? 1 Corinthians 14.1. 1 Corinthians 14.1 simply says, follow the way of love. Follow the way of love and eagerly or earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Follow the way of love and earnestly or eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Um, the image I would like you to have in your mind about on your mark is, I don't know if, you, if you're a runner or, you know, it's the, it's the guy in the blocks, his muscles or her muscles are all taut and poised and, you know, he's already stretched and warmed out and maybe a little sweat coming down his face and um, he's just waiting for the gun to sound. And then he's going to explode into, into the fulfillment of all the preparation, all the special diet, everything he's done. It's, it's going uh, to be realized in those next few moments. It's kind of the way I see your church, to be honest. I see you in the blocks. I see you poised to run an amazing race. And so um, that's kind of that's what the message is about. It's, it's an image of high-level participation. Not, not a bunch of believers who's sitting in the stands waiting to see what's going to happen, but guys that are actually out there on the track. You see, high-level participation. My wife, Beck, is, is a runner. She's preparing uh, in the fall for her first Ironman. I don't know why they don't call it Iron Woman, but she's run triathlons and half Ironmans, and she's always swimming or running or, you know, do, doing something. And um, I don't really connect with that too much. That's not like my deal, you know, to, to run miles and miles and swim. And I'm just like, so one day, I'm like, Beck, why? <laughs> why do you do this? And I really didn't know the answer until she told me. She says, well, I'll tell you, Jim. She says, the reason I do this is because my mom died of Alzheimer's. And I read that exercise is one of the ways to keep that disease away. 
And uh, she had read that running would reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. And I realized then that running, that, that her mother's death actually put her on her mark, you see. Her, her, seeing her mother suffer and lose dignity, that, that's really what motivated. And, you know, what I've noticed, because I hang out in that race culture now, I, I go to the races with Beth, what I've noticed is most of those runners, I don't, are there any runners here? Do you, anybody run? You, you don't get to run in Pennsylvania because it snows all the time, so I'm just like, okay, what do you do? I don't, I don't know. Um, anyway, um, what I've noticed in that running culture is that, is that, they're always running for a cause. All, there's a purpose, whether, you know, they're, they're running because of wounded warriors or they're running, you know, to, to get rid of their own addictions or, you know, to raise money for curing cancer or so, something like that. It was so funny, after Beck's first race, she, uh, she came across the finish line and um, I was there waiting on her and, and she looked at me after she caught her breath and she said, Jim! I'm an athlete now. <laughs> and I said, yeah, baby, you're an athlete now. And um, I realized, of course, after having lived with her all these years, that within her always was the potential to be a great athlete. It was there. It was inside her. But not until she ran did she define herself as an athlete. I'll just, I'll just say this as plain as I can because that's the way I like to communicate. Listen, your potential doesn't count. You actually have to get out of the stands on the track. Potential doesn't count, you, you see. In fact, I think this is probably the greatest battle that redeemed people face. Um, <clears throat> the gospel works when we finally admit, yes, we're sinners, we need some grace, and so amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. But I've met a lot of people, and probably, probably all in Dallas, they're probably not here, you know, in Pennsylvania, but I've met a lot of people who even after they've received this amazing grace, it's not grace unless it's amazing, this amazing grace comes to them, and they want to keep wearing the t-shirt that's like, I'm a wretch, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm broken, I'm, you know, and they never function in their potential. They never live in the new identity that grace has established over their life. And we see this in the Bible because like God came to Moses one day and said, Moses, I need a deliverer. How about you? How about you going, going before Pharaoh and setting the people free? And Moses is like, wait, God, time out. Did you forget? I stutter and I'm a felon. So I think I'm disqualified. And then, um, you know, God came to Gideon one day. He's like, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon is like, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm hiding in a wine press, God. And I'm afraid that the Midianites are going to steal my wheat, you know. One day God visited Mary and said, Mary, you're highly favored. You're the chosen one. And Mary's response was, how can this be, you know. Um, 
One day Jesus told his disciples, guys, here's a, here's a few loaves, here's some fish, feed the multitudes, feed these 5,000 guys that are listening to, to me preach. And the disciples, you know, they raised their eyebrows, they said, Jesus, did you forget how much you're paying us to be your disciples? We don't have, we, we are underqualified and under-resourced to do anything like that. You better send them away. And yet the persistent idea of the Bible is that when people get saved, when the Spirit of God comes to live in them, there's a demand on their greatness. There's a demand on their potential. Ezekiel 7 says, I, God, through the prophet, says, I'm going to show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the sight of many nations. Daniel 7 says, sovereignty Power and greatness will be handed over to the saints. Ephesians 1.19, Paul prays, I pray that you would understand the exceeding greatness of the power that is toward you. The exceeding greatness of his power that is toward you. Luke 7, for I say unto you among those born of women, there's never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Or John chapter Therefore, when Jesus himself said, most assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, the works I do, he will do also, and greater works than these. This stuff is in your Bible. This is a great, this is a great salvation. It's, it's a great salvation that is great enough to release God's greatness into the earth through people like us. It's a great salvation. And it's so great that it's great enough to release God's greatness into the earth through people like us. You, you don't know me well, and hopefully we're going to hang out for two or three days. So I'll just I'll tell you some stories that will let you know how I got on my mark. Um, I began my ministry in a little place called Leeds, Alabama. It's just, it's just outside uh, Birmingham. One day I was at a pastor's conference and the pastor said, you can't relate to me. Your church is big. My church is small. I said, well, let me tell you about Leeds, Alabama. 18 people voted on us to decide whether we would be the pastor at Leeds, Alabama or not. Uh, 18 of them. And they were all relatives. <laughs> it was Alabama. You would kind of, never mind. Um, Lived in a parsonage that was so infested with fleas, it was unbelievable. The floor sloped so much in this parsonage that my kids could play Hot Wheels and they didn't even have to push the car. <laughs> we worshipped from a cassette tape recorder, if any of you remember what, does anybody remember cassette tape players? Yeah. We worshipped from, from that because we didn't have a piano player. And Beck, she made fun of me because there was a closet back in the, in, in the back part of the, you know, where we worship, the little worship space, there was a closet, and I turned that closet into an office, and every morning at 8.30, I'd go into that office, and I would spend eight to 10 hours a day preparing my sermons for the 18 people who might come to worship. You know, that was if there was 100% attendance, there'd be 18 there, you know. 
I would prepare hours and hours getting these sermons and these Bible studies and praying over the city of Leeds, Alabama, and she would make fun of me. And, and uh, I remember one Wednesday night in particular, I'd, oh, I had the most amazing Bible study I'd ever gotten. I just thought, surely if the people hear this, there's going to be worldwide revival starting Leeds, Alabama. For this Bible study, it was that great, you know? And I got ready to preach, you know, and, and I went up on the Wednesday night, and nobody showed up on that particular Wednesday night to hear this great Bible study that I had poured my soul into. And I remember turning to Beck and saying, I just don't think I can do this anymore. And she said, yeah, you can. And so I kept preparing Bible studies. Sister Armstrong didn't come often, but when she came to Leeds, Alabama, First Assembly of God, I cringed. I, I hated to see when she arrived because inevitably, after the third song, no matter what I was feeling, she would stand up. She would sit right over there, so this might be your cue. I don't know. She would stand up, and she would start spinning after the third song. Didn't matter. She would stand, she would spin, and she made this noise. You, you probably you have never heard anything like this, but we, we called it the Pentecostal siren. And it was just a noise. She would stand up, third song, stand up, spin around, and go, and of course, I, I had come to Leeds, Alabama to bring dignity to the believers there. And so I was so uncomfortable with that. And I made fun of Sister Armstrong behind her back. Until I realized, I learned that as soon as she returned home after worshiping with us, her husband would uh, beat her just because she had come to worship with us. Every time. Years later, I realized it was Sister Armstrong who helped put me on my mark. After about five years, um, we moved from Leeds, Alabama to pastor a church in St. Petersburg, Florida. That was a much more sophisticated group. I got along with them better. And uh, things were delightful in St. Petersburg. I mean, the beaches, somebody had to go there, right? Somebody had to accept God's call to the beaches of St. Petersburg. We went. And um, things were delightful at St. Petersburg until one morning when I came to the office and someone had uh, cut animal carcasses in two and nailed them to the interior walls of our facility and written in chicken blood the most obscene profanity I'd ever seen and thus began a, began a year when the mail regularly included a letter that was threatening the life of my daughter and um, the elders who were my armor bearers who were alongside in that church their children also got threatened and they all they all left, all the elders left the church, and I was very alone. We got detectives involved to try to figure out who was doing that sort of uh, intimidation, and uh, they, couldn't discover, they couldn't discover who it was. But one day, a group of prayer warriors, old, really old guys, um, they came and they said, Pastor Jim, we know that you're young and you don't know much about this, but we're going to have a prayer meeting and we're going to keep praying until the wicked witch is dead. And so they said, if you'd like to come, you can. And I joined their prayer meeting. And on about the third day of that prayer meeting, I realized that the spiritual atmosphere had shifted and there was no more appearance of witches or dead animals and things turned. I don't know if you've ever been part of a prayer meeting like that. The point that I'm trying to make with you is a simple one. 
life's journey, life's circumstances, life's conversations, life's tests. Had a way of marking my soul, marking. The Lord was marking my soul and forming my faith. And, And every episode of my life was actually driving me toward a destiny, preparing me for a race, if you will. And I just, this is the God I'm so proud of. I'm so proud of a God who will take my embarrassing moments and and he will take my injustices and the things that I have a lot of doubt about and he'll take my victories and whatever your life contains and he crafts, that's his grace, he crafts your soul because he's engineered you to be a distributor of high-level Holy Spirit activity in these last days. Do you realize that God, if he wanted could have had Abraham or Moses or John the Baptist steward the spiritual atmosphere of this generation, but he's put us here instead. I'll tell you just one more story and then I'll, I'll preach my sermon to you. <laughs> um, story of Trinity Church. I've been there 20 years now and the founding pastor had been there 18 years prior to my arrival, and after 18 years, it was discovered that he had a moral failure, and as you can imagine, the church was um, devastated. The church felt betrayed, and there was a lot of confusion, but after about six years, I realized the church was going to survive. We were going to make it, and the potential of the church began to, to you know, appear, and that's when I, that's when I began to freak out a little bit because um, I had a lot of insecurities. I still do, but the real, the realization was I didn't feel like I was the leader that could take that church into its potential. I don't know if you know my neighborhood at all, but the pastors in my neighborhood, you might have heard of some of them, T.D. Jakes, Tony Evans, Ed Young, Chuck Swindoll, Robert Morris. Those are the guys that are within driving distance of my church, and it's not that we're competing, but I like it when people come to my church, you know. And so I started praying this prayer, and I'm like, God, I don't think I can compete with these guys. I'm I'm not even in the ballpark here, so would you just please send me somewhere where mediocrity will work, you know? (laughs) Would you send me to Pittsburgh? I'm just kidding, I didn't say that. I wasn't making fun of Pittsburgh a little bit. I was making fun. Well, the Lord... The Lord spoke to me in no uncertain terms. He was very disappointed. He says, Jim... I'm not going to let you live in mediocrity. It's like, don't you understand that I've engineered your life? I've, I've given you this great salvation so you can display the testimony of Jesus in, in, in this generation. He began to speak to me very specifically about how our church was to organize itself and go forward. And you know, I won't take time to tell you all that story except to say that I knew after that meeting with Jesus that um, our church was, in fact, purposeful to display the glory of God. Our church was, in, in fact, supposed to confirm the reality of the gospel through successful relationships and supernatural prayers. And, and, and you know, this kind of, this verse became one of the mottos of our church. We're to love deeply and, and earnestly, and we're to eagerly and sincerely seek after spiritual gifts. And when I decided, because God, I knew God was talking to me, when I decided that, okay, that's the kind of church we'll be, I actually thought I was giving up the vision of church growth. I thought, well, that's fine. We'll be a small little church in South Dallas County, and, and you know, there'll be a very fervent group of believers, and every once in a while we'll have a spiritual siren, maybe, or something that'll mess everything up, you know, but, but I really began to give up the idea that we would be a large church, and I expected that people would make fun of us, but what I learned, what I learned was that the gospel that worked in Corinth and Lystra and Derby 
and Rome, that gospel also worked in Cedar Hill, Texas. I, I began, I was astonished. I, oh my goodness, I almost said, y'all, I should say Ewan's. Listen, <laughs> this gospel, guys, is amazing. This gospel is incredible, not only to redeem us from our iniquities and our sins, but to release through us the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible, incredible gospel. And so I've, I've come to you with a statement of faith. My statement of faith is simply this, the only effective answer, the only effective answer to the unleashed power of sin is the manifest power of Let's say it one more time, even though no one's taking notes, but I'm going to say it one more time. The only effective answer to the unleashed power of sin is the manifest power of God. You see, what happened at our little church is that people began to come and some were healed. In fact, a few, more than a few, were healed of cancer and, and the word began to, to spread and, and, and some people received financial miracles and breakthroughs. And I don't know, you probably don't even have demonic powers in, in Pennsylvania, but, but actually I said that in the first service and this guy came to me in, in between services. And he says, yeah, yeah, we have demon-possessed people in Pennsylvania. He says, they always wear Dallas cowboy jerseys. That's how you know that they're demon-possessed. <laughs> anyway, our church really decided that we were just gonna go for it, you know? We were just gonna go for it. And our church ended up growing and growing and it's a pretty significant church. It's it's pretty big. And so, what is it going to take? What must happen to get the greatness of your great salvation out of the closet? What would it take to get you out of the stands onto the track, you see? How are you going to get on your mark? And, and, and I'll just briefly mention three things, and really that's kind of the it's kind of the vision of the week, the, the time that we'll be together. Is there anybody that really would like to go deeper with God? Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said. Let's explore the possibilities of spiritual experiences. That's what we're going to do the next few days. I hope you'll come. So here's the outline. Live in freedom, alter your desires, and distribute spiritual gifts. Live in freedom, alter your desires, and distribute spiritual gifts. Okay, you want, to get, you want to get some greatness out of your heart? Then live in your freedom. Live in your freedom. Galatians 3.1 says, Oh, foolish Galatians, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who's put a spell on you that you should not obey the truth? Didn't you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now perfected by your flesh, in your flesh? Are you perfected in your flesh? And then there's a summary of the whole book of Galatians in 5.1. He says, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. You see? Uh, this is like a duh moment, but duh. Did you know that spiritual greatness requires the Holy Spirit? If you're going to be spiritually great, you're going to have to get this relationship with the Holy Spirit going. Because the agenda of the devil, I can tell you, the agenda of the devil is to keep you small. The agenda of the devil is to keep you in a cage or on a leash. But the agenda of the Holy Spirit involves bringing your life into its supernatural potential. God has engineered you for greatness. And the Holy Spirit is the way it comes out.
you see. I mean, what is freedom? Most of the time when we talk about freedom, we're, we're defining it in negative terms. So we'll say, okay, we're debt-free or we're cancer-free or, or we're worry-free. And that's not really telling us what freedom is. It's just telling us what, what it's not, you know? That doesn't work when you're trying to define anything else. I, I mean, if somebody says, well, what is a coffee pot? Well, you know, you, you know, you don't say, well, it's not an airplane and it's not a baseball game. I mean, you know, it just doesn't work for everything else. So we say what freedom is not, but what is it? Well, when the Bible talks about freedom, and it does talk about freedom. Am I talking too fast for you? Okay. When the Bible talks about freedom, and it does talk about freedom a lot, it's talking about a spiritual force that gives us the opportunity or the choice to live in our design, in our purpose. Spiritual freedom is a force that gives us the opportunity to live in our design. So that we would say, for instance, okay, a whale, a whale is free when it's in its element, right? I mean, it's when it's in that, in that big, deep, blue Pacific Ocean and swimming out there and breaching and making whale noises and, and, you know, filming commercials for insurance companies. When it's doing those things, it is doing what it was designed to do. And when you see the whale in its element, you go, oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, let's go watch the whales. It's so, it's so powerful. But if you see a whale, when we were in Florida, this happened occasionally. When you see a whale that comes out of its element, when it beaches, oh my goodness, it's a tragic thing. It, it, it loses its beauty. It loses its power. And so the United States government will, will pay a lot. It costs a lot to free Willie, you know. It costs a lot to free the whale. And, and I just want to, I'm preaching, I'm exhorting you this morning that when you choose to live small, when you live outside your element, when you live in such a way that you're gasping instead of flourishing, the power that God had put in you, the beauty that God has designed you with, you know, all of that gets marred. And I'm just here to remind you, Jesus paid a lot so that you could live in your element. What is my element? Well, you know, we could spend a long time describing that, but 2 Samuel 7 says your element is to do God's great and awesome deeds. Ephesians 2.10 says that your element is to be God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. That's your element. Guys, the Holy Spirit sees potential over you even when you don't. Um, you know, all of us live with these voices and these ideas in our heart that keep us small and keep us defeated. Some coach spoke something over you when you were in kindergarten or your parents or, you know, somebody, some lover broke up with you and, and your heart condemns you. But my newest favorite verse is in 1 John where it says, yeah, but God is even greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. And so if you've got voices that are trying to keep you small coming out of your heart, but you've got the voice from heaven that's decreeing and declaring your greatness, just go ahead and agree with a voice that's coming from heaven because, because that voice is the one that will lead you to freedom. You see. My, my, um, when I was eight years old, my dad, my parents moved from Montgomery, Alabama to Columbus, Georgia. And when I was in Montgomery, Alabama, I was a baseball player, but I was a bad baseball player. I was terrible. I struck out all the time. 
And I'll just say that one of the reasons I did that was because the little league that we played in was a Catholic league. I was the only Protestant that I knew of that was playing in this Catholic league. And the little pitchers, before, before they would pitch, they would genuflect. And when they would genuflect, I thought, that's not fair. God's on their side. I mean, that, he strike me out every time. So there were supernatural pitches coming at me. Do you understand what, I, what I'm saying? And, and, and so I was a bad baseball player in Montgomery. But we moved to Columbus, and my dad insisted that I continue to play baseball, even though I was a bad baseball player player and he introduced me to the coach at the little league and uh, I'll never forget this conversation the, the, the coach said oh we're so glad that your son is going to be on our team and then he asked this question to my dad he said is your son is your son a good baseball player well I, my head went down because I was dreading this answer right I mean my dad's going to throw me under the bus he's just going to tell him the truth that I'm such a bad but you know what my dad said my dad looked at me and he looked at the coach and he said my son is a great baseball player well, the coach, you know, he's, he, he's excited. My, my confusion is, is, is deep because I've got two problems now. I'm a bad baseball player. My father is a liar. How am I going to get through life, you know? <laughs> How am I going to make it? And so the coach is like, oh, well, I'm, that's wonderful. What, uh, uh, what position does he play? My dad paused for a minute and he said, what position do you, do you need him to play? And the coach said, well, what I really need is a pitcher. And uh, my dad looked at me, looked back at the coach. He says, my son is a great pitcher. Now, I had never pitched a game in my life. The only time I'd ever pitched was in the backyard to my dad. And I'm just really confused. More, more so when the coach says, great, we have a game this afternoon. I'll let him pitch this afternoon. Before God and all of you as witnesses, I, I'm telling you the truth. The first game that I ever pitched was that day, and I pitched a perfect game. Not one batter got on base. Not one batter got on base. You don't understand baseball here, right? I mean, <laughs> not one batter got on base. And from that day forward, I was a great baseball player. I don't know if you understand what happened that afternoon, but, but there was a voice of my father that was greater than the voice that was in my heart. And the voice of my father unleashed something in me that stayed with me. I mean, I could, I could take you on right now in baseball. I'm pretty sure if we, you know, and I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm too old to play baseball. I don't play base. But do you understand? It, it framed my identity. It established something of worth in me that I'd, I'd never heard before. I'm just trying to tell you that God is greater than the voice from God is greater than the voice that's, that's in your heart. And what God intends over you is to make you great. To make you great in his kingdom. And so that's the first point. Here's the second point. You want to get this greatness out, this great salvation? It's not you. It's the salvation that God has put in you. How do we get it out? How do we get it out of the stands? And the second way is you have to alter your desires. You have to alter your desires. The text says, desire spiritual gifts or desire spiritual manifestations. And the theologians tell me that that particular phrase in the New Testament is the strongest verb sequence anywhere in the New Testament. In other words, there are more exclamation marks behind pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. More exclamation marks should be behind that phrase than any other phrase in all of the New Testament. <clears throat> alter your desires. Um, Paul says, if you're going to have spiritual greatness in you, you, you're going to have to learn to take responsibility for what your heart 
hungers for, what you desire. You're going to have to take responsibility for what you desire. Um, let, me, let me come at that this way. Sin makes sense if you refuse to live in your greatness. If you're not going to live in your greatness, you're going to be susceptible to sin. You, you remember when humans lived in the bosom of God, all of our desires were ultimately satisfied and fulfilled. But the minute we decided that we were going to be our own God, our love shifted, our allegiance shifted. And we, we, we decided we were going to be our own gods instead of letting God be God over us. And, and the truth is that you were designed for greatness. You were designed for love that is eternal. You were designed to interact with the supernatural. You were designed for life that conquers death. You were designed for intimacy with nature. And now we just thirst for those things. And we go to the movies to see, you know, to see the fantasy world where we wish we could, you know, be the guy that rescues the damsel in distress or whatever it is. But just like Adam and Eve reached for an apple, we're always reaching we're always reaching for a career or a beauty product or significance or, or, or a sexual you know, relationship that will recover what we intuitively know that we've lost. And just when we put our hand on the thing that we think is going to help us recover our greatness, it vanishes. And so divorce makes sense if you thought marriage was going to release the greatness you once had. Thievery makes sense. If you thought money and power was going to make you great again, promiscuity makes sense. If you think sex restores the intimacy that, that you lost when you decided you were going to be your own God. We were great, but we lost our greatness, and so our desires are skewed. We're still trying to find greatness in all the wrong places. So how, how do we change our desire? How do we... How do we do that? And, you know, I'd like to just give you a little parable and, 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 you know, imagine that someone rescued you. I mean, I don't know. Imagine that your house caught on fire and, 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 and she comes in and dragged you out and now you're alive because she risked her life. But she's injured, so now she's in the hospital. She's got IVs coming in her and she's, she's in critical care. <laughs> but, but you're free <laughs> And so what are your desires toward, toward her? Well, you, you feel this pressure in your heart, right? I mean, it's like, oh, you did this for me. And, and if there's anything I could do for you, I mean, you rescued me. If there's anything I could do for you, just please let me know the least I can do. And, and, and this is kind of the condition of a free person. Of, uh, a free person knows they've been rescued. And, and the love that has rescued you, the love that comes to you sort of puts a pressure on you toward having new desires. I, I mean, you know, what if, what if she said, for instance, um, well, something that would really help while I'm in the hospital is if you mow my grass. Oh, no, 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 let's change that. Something that would really help is if you shovel my snow. How about that? That would really help because I'm in the hospital and would you just shovel the, the sidewalk? And you might be a person who's like, hey, <laughs> I just don't have any desire to be a snow shoveler. I don't, I don't want to mow grass. I never like doing those kind of things. But now, you see, now you see, you're glad to mow the grass. You're glad to, 
to shovel the snow because the person who rescued you, this is a, this is a way of coming into their life, coming near to, to them. I, people ask me all the time, Pastor, if I become a Christian, do I have to give up going to Vegas? If I become a Christian, do I have to give up smoking? Do I have to give this up? And, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, that's not even a fair question because when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, the desires that you currently have are going to be radically altered by the new desires that come to you because you realize you've been rescued. And so the principle is, even though we're believers, we're not really going to have a desire to help people. We're not going to really have a desire to unlock treasures in our community or in other people until we realize the magnitude of what Christ has done for us. And this is probably just a Dallas problem. It's probably not even a problem here in Pennsylvania. But I know a lot of people who will be in church on Sunday morning and they're not even truly thankful for the rescue that's come to their life by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. We could become thankful. Then we would have desires that are in alignment with who God is. Does this make sense to you? Okay. Okay. Reason people in the Bible embraced new desires was because they realized they'd been rescued. Moses is like, okay, okay, God, if you love me enough to give me another chance and to get me out of this relationship with my father-in-law Jethro, then I'll go face Pharaoh. And Gideon is like, okay, God, if you love me enough to protect me from Midian's camels and all, the, all those raids, then I'll form an army. And Mary would say, okay, God, if you love me enough to choose me, then be it unto me according to your will. And I think it was the disciples who were the very first to say, God, if you love me enough to bear my sins on the cross, then we will take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And guys, that is not bondage, that's love. That's love. All right, point number three, real quick. I'm, I'm done here. Are you ready? Let's, uh, point number three is this. You want, the, you want the greatness? Do you want the greatness? Is there a hunger? Is there a thirst? We sang the songs. Is there a thirst for greatness? Then we're gonna have to, dis- we're gonna have to distribute spiritual gifts. We're going to have to distribute spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, The Spirit works these things, and there's a list, healings and miracles and faith, all kinds of things. And then it says, These gifts distribute to each one. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 says, Now concerning these spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every believer. It's given to each one. And 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, This is my favorite. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, don't you know? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Don't you know? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Temple, that was, oh, that was such a loaded word back in the first, gener- you know, the first century. It's such a loaded word because, you see, remember, the function of the temple was that finally, finally there's a place where people can meet the living God. Not just come and study about God, not just rehearse the legends about what used to happen with God, but now there's a temple, there's an actual place of encounter where once a year a human being can come to the holy place and meet the living God. That was the temple. And Paul, can you imagine how radical this was for those guys? Paul says, okay, now you're the temple. You're the place that people meet the living God. 
I promise if you come back, I won't use any more baseball illustrations after this one, okay? This is the last baseball illustration. Just, just do this for Pastor Mel. Um, I, I noticed when he, when I went into his office, I don't know if you've ever been in his office, it's probably because you haven't been in trouble. People go into his office when they're in trouble. Um, but there's this huge poster of Brooks Robinson. Have you seen that? I mean, was it out here at one point, the poster? Okay, this huge poster of Brooks Robinson. It reminded me of something that happened last year when I was at a baseball game. We have baseball in Dallas, Texas Rangers. And um, I, had, I had tickets and I went early to watch them take bat in practice. And so here I am sitting up in the 18th row and there's this guy with one of those big posters. It's a poster of Adrian Beltre. You don't know who he is, but Adrian Beltre, and he's the third baseman for the Rangers. And he's got his big poster, and the guy is so obnoxious. And he's right there by the dugout. And he's screaming out at Adrian Beltre, Go, Adrian, you're the best. You're amazing. And he's carrying his poster. He's just waving at everybody. There's like 500 people in the whole stadium because it's batting practice, you know? And he's just waving at Adrian Beltre. And, and I'm just embarrassed because, again, I, like, I prefer dignity over that kind of radical fanaticism, you know. And I just got to tell you what, what happened. Just before the game started, Adrian Beltre comes to this obnoxious guy, signs the poster with a big marker, takes a photograph with the crazy guy, shakes hands with him, gives him a baseball, marries the guy's daughter. I'm just making that up, seeing if you're listening, all right? Just making that part up. But here's the point. The normal guy was interacting with the great guy in the temple, in the baseball temple, while I, with my arms folded and my condescending spirit on row 18, still have yet to meet Adrian Beltre. Does that illustration make sense to you at all? I've come from Dallas to challenge you not to be the guy that sits on the 18th row, but whatever it takes to have meaningful encounters with the living God. Come on, let's don't be a church that studies about God. Let's don't be a church that rehearses what God used to do. Let's be the church that comes face to face with the living God. Let's be the church that meets God. You're the, te- you're the temple. And this entire community, this entire community, they deserve better than stories about what God used to do back in the 70s. They deserve meetings with the living, eternal God. And how's that going to happen? as you are willing to distribute what's coming into you. That's how they meet the living God. Nelson Mandela says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. 
There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to manifest the glory of God that is within us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. You've been greatly saved. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. I've come today to ask you to walk in love and to earnestly desire spiritual expression into this community because you've been rescued by Jesus. Would you bow your heads? In just a moment, Pastor Mel is going to come and close the service, but I'd, I'd love to pray. I'd love to pray for you. I don't know the protocol here, so forgive me if I'm doing something that is out of the ordinary. But if you've come to church today and you really don't have freedom, you're really not living in the element that you know you were designed to live in, please let me, let me just pray a quick prayer for you. I'm not gonna, you can't join the church. I'm not gonna have you come forward or anything like that. I just wanna pray for your freedom. I believe that God wants you to be free. Or maybe, maybe you're here today and it's a, you've got a desire problem. You've got, you know, we all have mixed desires. I want to lose 10 pounds and, and, and I want to eat chocolate. Those are conflicted desires. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have a desire for God. But can I pray for you to become responsible for your desires? Can I pray for, can I pray for desires toward God, hunger toward God to increase? Or maybe finally, you just give me the privilege, what an awesome privilege, just to pray for your heart, for your heart that wants to send messages and voices that keep you small, keep you condemned, keep you. I wanna pray that your heart would align itself with the God who is greater than your heart. So I know that's kind of general and I'm just gonna pray a, a really brief prayer, but if there's anybody here that would, just say, Pastor, I, this, this word is for me, it's for my heart, and I'd give you permission to pray a prayer over me. Would you just show me a, your hand just real quick? Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, so many, so many, so many. Thank you for the privilege of praying for you. I'm gonna pray in faith, and the Bible says that if we pray in faith, God hears our prayer. So, Father, I just really believe that, as Pastor Mel has already said, um, there's, a, there's a real arrangement over today. There's a real orchestration of these lives to meet with you today. Or this is not random. This is not liturgy. This is not ritual just to come to church on a Sunday morning. We're here to meet with you. And Lord, we're acknowledging that there's a whole lot more potential, not in us, but in you, in us, in, because you're in us. And so I pray, I pray for our hearts. I pray for our hearts, Lord. I pray that the voices that are trying to keep us small and the voices that are saying you'll never amount to anything. Lord, we choose, to, we choose to let that voice be silent and we choose to agree with the great God who is speaking his love over us and his potential over us and his resurrection authority over us. We say, God, make us whatever you want us to be. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that that our hearts would yield to the desires that please and honor the one who rescued us. And we welcome 
high level spiritual activity in our hearts right now but but over the next few days we welcome we're not afraid of you God we welcome high level spiritual activity in our hearts for your great glory and honor this we pray in the name of Jesus the strong and amazing son of God and all God's people said amen Pastor Mel come please Hey, can we tell Pastor Jim how much we appreciate that word he brought to us today? You know, I've got so much anticipation about what God wants to do uh, in this place, in our hearts collectively, but in each of us individually as well. And so I, I can't stress to you strongly enough, I'd love to see you back here tonight. Uh, if you would, let's stand all over this place. The worship team is going to lead us in one more song before dismissed. But this is what's going to happen, just like in our normal worship experiences. Our prayer team is going to be on either side of this stage as we are closing out. Uh, if you've got prayer needs of any kind, we're available. We want to pray with you. And it's not us that makes the difference. It's the Spirit that's working in us. It's, it's God's Spirit. That, uh, that makes the difference in your needs. So let us pray with you. Let us agree with you in that. If you're here today and you don't want to come forward for whatever reason, those prayer cards are in that seat back in front of you. Fill it out. Let us know about your prayer needs. Email us at prayer at summittogether.com. Let us know about those. And we pray over every one of those needs at our staff meeting every week. We agree over those together. So you're not alone in your, in your situation. We're in this thing with you. So if you need prayer of any kind, come see us. We want to agree with you today before you leave. Um, and as we are singing and as we're worshiping this last song, let's reflect on the truth that God brought to us during this word. Maybe there was a specific part of this message that really penetrated your heart or really ministered to you or really spoke to you. Take a few minutes and let's really reflect on that as we worship together. So let's worship one more time before dismissed. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To watch this message on video, go to summittogether.com.